0: Hi, it's Dominic Preziosi for the Commonwealth Podcast, and we're back after a brief hiatus for the summer. Racial justice continues to be at the forefront of the national debate, especially in advance of the election. In August, we saw the police involved shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the death of Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York. The question that arises for a lot of people is where is the white Christian church? And has it efficiently reckoned with its own complicity in white supremacy? Today, we're pleased to have Robert P. Jones, the author of White Too Long The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. He speaks with our assistant editor, Regina Munch. That's coming up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Regina. Welcome back.
1: Hi, Dominic. Thanks.
0: So you talked with Robert P. Jones.
1: Yes. Jones is a sociologist at Public Religion Research Institute, and his new book, White Too Long, makes the argument that throughout U.S. history, white Christians and white churches have been not merely complicit in upholding slavery and white supremacy, but are actual builders and maintainers of white supremacy and have been throughout U.S. history. What's interesting is some of the survey data from PRRI that Jones uses to talk about attitudes of white Christians of different denominations today on questions of racism and white supremacy.
0: Okay, let's take a listen.
1: Would you take us briefly through the book's central argument? What makes it so urgent today?
2: Uh, well, you know, it's, it is really in the subtitle. The full title of the book is White Too Long, and the subtitle is The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And I think one way of putting it is when you mention something like the church and civil rights, most people think of African-American churches and the role that they played in promoting civil rights and helping to organize the civil rights movement But what has not received that much attention that I think is really important, particularly for the moment we're in, this kind of moment of reckoning on racial justice issues, is the role that the white church played in resisting the civil rights movement. And then if you kind of go back deeper into our history, that all the way from the founding, how white Christianity has been and white American churches, white American denominations have been wrapped up and really um, infected with white supremacy all the way back to the beginning of the country.
1: Some histories lately have come to talking about the history of white Christianity as complicit in racism and racial injustice, but your argument goes a little further that white Christians and white churches actually built and reinforced white supremacy. Could you tell me how they did that?
2: I think there's often a kind of protectionist argument that gets made that protects a kind of pristine form of Christianity from being tarnished by white supremacy. But I really don't think that reading holds up, you know, and at best you get to complicity, right? But even there, it's sort of like the church got drug along Mm -hmm. by some outside force, like by Southern culture or something like that. But I think a plain reading of history really doesn't really support that. I mean, what you see is white Christian churches serving as hubs, just like the African-American churches were serving as hubs for organizing for civil rights. I mean, white Christian churches were serving as hubs from everything for like the first Confederate battle flags, for example, were were sewn by church ladies in Richmond um, that were literally, you know, organizing through the churches to sew battle flags. And I think even more important than that is the legitimizing factor that white Christianity played. I mean, it was the way to sort of literally baptize this worldview of white supremacy. And and again, I don't really mean by that term, I should just take a quick moment. That term, I don't really mean people in sheets and burning crosses in people's lawns, but literally to understand that word better, I think it is this worldview that saw whites as literally superior to African-Americans, to Native Americans, and pretty much anyone whose skin was darker than theirs and who didn't didn't originate in, in Western Europe. Uh, And there's no greater source of legitimacy than to say something was dictated and handed down by God and supported by the Bible. I mean, this is exactly what the role that white Christian churches, both Protestant and Catholic, played.
1: How did this legitimizing of white supremacy, how did that get mapped onto Christian theology and Christian imagery? Could you give us an example?
2: You can go way, way back even prior to the U.S. I mean, you know, it's something as early as the Doctrine of Discovery, which is, you know, 1493, where Pope Alexander VI, you know, basically announces that lands that are inhabited by anyone who's not Christian could be taken with abandon. So it goes way, way back there. It's incorporated, you know, and then it's incorporated in a kind of Protestant view of the world, and particularly in the American context, where that doctrine of manifest destiny really takes off, right, with white Protestants at at the beginning and and then not too long after significant numbers of white Catholics Taking it on, for example, even in the uh, the late 1700s, in my home state of where I live now, in in Maryland, which is a heavily Catholic state, there's records that show that basically that as many as a fifth of Catholics in the late 1700s in Maryland were enslaved Africans who were owned, and most of whom had been forcibly converted to Catholicism after their enslavement.
1: You talk about the evangelical type of relationship that is encouraged between God an individual. That's a very individualist way of thinking about your salvation. What does that have to do with white supremacy?
2: Yeah, you know, I I think this is one way in which white supremacy has adapted. What happens, I think, a little later, sort of post-Civil War, and particularly, is there's an evolution. And one of the ways that theology evolves um, is to kind of come up with this, or, or to really develop the centrality of this personal relationship with Jesus. And this is something you still hear. For example, virtually every service in an evangelical church would have some conversation about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And you know one of the consequences of that is that it is so hyper-individualistic and hyper internal, right? A kind of, it's an internal psychological and emotional kind of connection to God. And, but that when religion, the beginning and the end of religion is seen in that kind of relationship, what literally gets screened out are social injustices, systemic injustices, and particularly around race, it becomes a way for white evangelicals in particular to feel very comfortable with their own personal religion in a way that's very disconnected from any claims or cries about inequality or injustice by their African-American brothers and sisters. It literally falls on deaf ears because it's really seen to be outside the realm of what's most central really to being Christian.
1: You're a scholar of religion, and the book is actually quite personal though, even autobiographical. You grew up in a church that was part of the Southern Baptist Convention. What was it like to grow up in the church? And then how did your view of the church change as you grew older?
2: Well, you know, that's right. On this topic of, you know, white supremacy and American Christianity, I I didn't think there was really an honest way to write this book without really putting my own story in it. And and as you say, I, I grew up for the most part in Jackson, Mississippi as a Southern Baptist. And and one of the remarkable things to me is that I was largely ignorant of the history of even our own denomination, much less, you know, kind of white Christianity and its role in racism and slavery writ large. For example, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was founded in 1845, literally over the issue of slavery. And it was a dispute between Northern and Southern Baptists over whether a clergy person who was going to be a missionary could legitimately own slaves or not, and whether that was compatible with an understanding of Christianity. And the Southern churches took the position that it was, and when the Northern, their Northern Baptist brethren disagreed with them, they just split, formed their own convention. That's where the name came from, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, so that they could hang on to this idea, this theology, these practices of the compatibility of slavery, white supremacy, and Christianity. That denomination that goes on by the middle of the 20th century to be the largest Protestant denomination in the country it it really does mark American Protestantism in, in the middle of the 20th century they have you know more than 16 million members largest Christian you know denomination of any kind in the country I think a little shocking I didn't find that it's out until I was actually in seminary in my early 20s and I was at church all the time and think like, this is what we're saying I was that kid who was at church like five days a week for worship services a couple of times on Sunday, and then all kinds of church activities throughout the week, all the way through my youth group, and never heard this. And so there was a little bit of, um, and felt a little betrayed, actually, of not really getting a serious understanding of our history, and literally heard zero sermons out of all that time growing up on racial justice, you know, or white Christianity's role or complicity, or just anything about this entanglement of white supremacy in in our history.
1: You keep coming back to a paradox that is how can a church that has done so much demonstrable good for people within the church, like many of us have had very positive experiences growing up in a church, but at the same time, knowing that church has been so violent and destructive toward others. And you bring up two words, protection and purity.
2: Yeah, I think this is the dilemma. You know, I I should say, I mean, this book is not a a really a finger-wagging book by somebody from outside who thinks there's nothing good in the church. I've been deeply, deeply shaped and formed by this tradition in both good and bad ways. And I think that complexity is part of the more difficult pieces of trying to sort of seriously reckon, you know, with the more disturbing parts of our, our history. It's the responsibility of every generation to see as best they can what's worth holding on to, and what, you know, the church has gotten seriously wrong in the past and to do what they can to excise it. So, you know, this, this idea of purity and innocence, I think, is the biggest stumbling block. If we want to kind of hang on to, and here I'm speaking as someone who is a Christian, if we, meaning us white Christians, want to hold on to and pass down the good to our children and grandchildren, I think there's no way to do that without seriously wrestling with the bad and doing everything we can to excise those things, to put a sharp and bright light on them so that we can excise them as best we can, so that we're handing less of a muddled mess down to the next generation.
1: What did Catholics have to do with white supremacy in the United States, particularly in the 20th century after white Catholics had sort of tried to legitimate themselves in the eyes of American Protestants?
2: toward the country's founding catholic institutions and wealthier catholics i mean owned you know significant numbers of enslaved people so that's there but you know what's interesting is that the the history is much more complex right because catholics in this country as you know have Face their own history of discrimination. I mean, the, the amount of anti-Catholic bias that was around in the early part of the 20th century was really palpable. And it, it's, I think people often forget that the KKK, you know, which has this kind of it, its kind of revival in the early part of the 20th century into the 1920s, that it was not just an anti-Black organization. It was an anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish organization that literally saw Catholics as a threat to American democracy. At the same time, it's worth saying that. Many of these dynamics held on, I think, among Catholics. So in the 1940s, for example, not just in the South, but in in somewhere like New York, there was the kind of great migration of African-Americans from the South to New York. And one of the things that happened there is that they were that this influx of African-Americans were in many cases moving into what had been historically Catholic neighborhoods. They were Irish neighborhoods or they were Italian neighborhoods. And there was this kind of racial conflict there. And that one of the ways that the, the actual official church responded was to segregate the Catholic parish system is is geographical, right? And so, but rather than letting African-Americans go to the local parish church, they designated one parish, St. Mark's Parish, as the place where African-Americans were to go. And if the kids wanted to go to Catholic school, they had to go to St. Mark's if they were African-American. And that's uh, as, as one ca- Catholic priest African-American Catholic priest said, that's not in the bad, bad South. That's in the good, good North. This is happening. And I guess one other thing I'll say that's recent, the bishops actually also put out statements on race um, that were actually calling on you know people to have you know, better attitudes toward African-Americans for equal rights through the 1960s and the 1980s. But Brian Messingale has done a lot of research on this, and I draw on him in the book, um, that he showed that But by 2004, two-thirds of Catholics reported that they had heard no sermons on race through the entire three-year lectionary cycle. So in other words, uh, in three years of preaching through the Bible and offering homilies on the Bible, two-thirds of Catholics are reported hearing nothing on race through the entire text, uh, through reflections on the entire text of the Bible, and only 18% of bishops had issued statements. So, you know, what seems to have happened is that there is these kind of formal statements, but they just don't in any way make it down into the pews. And the real proof in the pudding here is that, that when I, we look at contemporary attitudes, white Catholics look very similar in their attitudes on race as white evangelicals and and white mainline Protestants do.
1: I'd actually like to talk about that, about the study that you did to look at racist and white supremacist attitudes among white Christians of different denominations and compare that to white Americans who are not affiliated with with a church. How did you go about that study and what did you find?
2: One of the patterns that I noticed was a lot of time looking at public opinion data on a whole range of issues and then looking particularly how the people of faith in the country, you know, respond to these things and on issues of race and particularly on issues of systemic racism, that there were these huge gaps between whites who identified as Christian of any kind, whether they were Protestant or Catholic and whites who claimed no religious affiliation at all. And it really, virtually every one of these questions, it's whites who are not Christian whose views were closer to African Americans than whites who were. So, just to give you an example, I, I set up a, a what I call a racism index in the book, and it uses 15 different questions that cover a whole range of ground from Confederate monuments and flags to systemic issues like the killing of African American men by police. And really, this gap exists on all these questions. But to give you a sense of it. At the composite level, um, you basically score this racism index on a scale, you know, one to 10, with 10 being kind of holding higher racist attitudes. And so maybe no surprise that white evangelicals basically score eight out of 10 on this racism index. But what is, I think, more surprising is that white Catholics and white mainline Protestants score basically seven out of 10 on the same index, while white religiously unaffiliated Americans only score four out of ten and and again it's consistent from question after question after question here and even when we put in controls for you know things like partisanship and maybe it's you know maybe it's because people are republican or they are they um are living in a more conservative area more rural area or more in the south even controlling for all those things this independent relationship between white christian identity of any kind Protestant or Catholic and holding more racist attitudes uh, stands up in a very robust way.
1: Those are very startling findings and a huge accusation really of white Christians, an exhortation to do better and an accusation that enough has not been done. How do you account for that? And what are some ways that white Christians and, and white Americans in general are doing some work to address white supremacy?
2: I think if if you're someone who has a history like me and you've grown up in the church, and again if you've had if you're white, you've had a fairly positive experience um in the church, I think the reaction to hearing those numbers is is shock. It's certainly not what we would expect. It's not what you know, and and, and I should also add that that things like church attendance matter not at all on this. So, you know, it's not the case that people attend church more. So, for example, you know, you hear this term thrown around sometimes Catholics in name only who just claim to be Catholic, but don't really aren't connected to a local parish or church. But even when we look at, at those, there, there's really no difference. Uh, attending church does not make one less racist, for example. Um, and that's true in both Catholic and Protestant examples. So that's fairly shocking when you, when you do that, if you're from inside the, you know that, that world. But what's notable is that, you know, as I've kind of been talking to people about this, who's not shocked? African-American Christians, you know, when when I talk to them about these numbers, they're not shocked um, by this. I think that's worth noting. We actually have some new data from PRI that actually shows some movement among white Catholics on the issue of the killing of unarmed black men by police. Unlike white evangelicals, we actually are seeing some movement among white Catholics on that issue. So in 2015, right at the beginning, as the Black Lives Matter movement was getting started, and when we asked about whether killings of unarmed black men by police were isolated incidents or part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans, 71 percent of white Catholics said they were isolated incidents. Right. And they were not different in that survey from white evangelicals or, frankly, from white mainland Protestants. They were all right at seven and ten saying that. But in our last survey. White evangelicals are still at seven and 10 saying they're isolated incidents, but white Catholics have actually dropped down to 56 percent saying they're isolated incidents, which means far more white Catholics today than five years ago are seeing the connections uh, between are, are seeing this as, as something that is connected and part of a pattern of how African-Americans are treated by police. So what can we be done? I think there are some things that can be done, but I, I think as those numbers I mentioned a minute ago about What's not going to fix this are statements from denominational hierarchies or bishops or you know people from on high. What is, I think, going to begin to make some real change is what happens down at the local congregational and parish level. And that we haven't seen a lot of. Frankly, um, again, is that, you know, only 18% of even bishops were pushing it down to the congregational level. But I I write at the end of the book about two churches, and I focus on these two churches because they have a connection, again, to my own sort of family story, which I'm trying to also tell through the book. But just briefly, there are these two—there are actually two First Baptist churches in Macon, Georgia, which is the town my parents—both of my parents grew up in, um, in middle Georgia— and they have this shared history. One of one of them is probably white. one's probably black. And the African American church is uh, had, their history is that they were their ancestors were formerly owned uh and were enslaved by uh, the ancestors of, of the white church. They have sat they've been in close proximity to one another. They literally sit around the, the corner from each other and making for 150 years post-Civil War. And not until the last you know five to seven years have they really begun to build some community. And the two pastors have gotten together um and basically said, like what are what are we doing? Like we're we're here, we have this shared history and we've been kind of living in our bubbles and they began to build some bridges, um, you know, over the last five years in, in particular that have really paid um, huge dividends. And I think in particular, you know, have caused some some pretty strong soul searching, including some theological soul searching uh, by, by the white church. Uh, just, you know, one example, the white church found, for example, only as a part of doing this set of conversations and as a part of doing their own work in their own congregation, you know, look back through their archives and found, A moment early on in their church's life where the church was having a hard time paying the pastor's salary and meeting its budgetary demands, paying for the building, etc. And in this financial crunch, one way they balanced the books is they actually sold some enslaved members of their own church to pay the bills. And you can actually see in this one ledger, you know, money coming in from the sale of actually their own members, enslaved members, and then money going out to pay for the building and pay for pastors all in one, you know, kind of linked up transaction. And I think coming face-to-face with that with that history is, has meant a real turning point, and particularly for the white church. But I, I think it is in these kind of covenanted, long-term, community-building, relationship-building, organic exercises. I think that's really where the change is going to come. It's certainly not going to come from declarations and statements uh, because I think the work is much harder than that.
1: The title of the book comes from James Baldwin, who said that many Americans have been white too long to reckon with racism. What message do you want white Christians to hear about their own whiteness and their relationship with God?
2: Yeah, you know, I I read a lot of James Baldwin doing the research for this book, and in particular, I think because uh, he had this sense of—I mean, he grew up really as a boy preacher, you know, um, in in Harlem and and deeply connected to Christianity. But I think he he liked King. I think was deeply disappointed in white Christians, right? That I think he, he had some ver- some hope as King did. And you, and you can hear the disappointment of King and Letter from Birmingham Jail, for example, but the same kind of disappointment that that ultimately he thought white uh, Christians in particular would stand up. And he he wrote those these words, I'll, I'll read a little bit here, but he, he wrote these words after the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy when he was fairly despondent and there had, still had not been a great uprising of kind of white Christians, again, not just a few leaders, but from the pews finally standing up and saying, okay, enough, like we're, you know, we're we're going to get behind the civil rights movement. So in that moment of despair, in the kind of shadow of the assassination of King and, and Kennedy, he wrote these words in a New York Times editorial. I'll give you the full context and says, um, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. They have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. And, you know, those words really, I think, stayed stayed with me. Um, and I think it, it goes to how deep the problems are, which we shouldn't be that surprised about. I mean, I, I think, again, when you hear these numbers, the contemporary public opinion numbers, one reaction, you know, I hear from many of my fellow white Christians is, like, how can this be? How can it be that church attendance makes a difference? How can it be that white Christians have such a difficult time seeing systemic racism compared to whites who are not Christian? But I think when you see this history and you really take the history seriously and take it in, the question shifts from how can this be to, well, how could it be otherwise given this history? And so I, I think that the challenge for white Christians, I think, first of all, is I, I, I titled the first chapter of the book, Seeing, uh, S-E-E-I-N-G, for a reason that the, the first challenge, the first is is really just to see what's in front of us and then to have the courage once we see it to tell the truth. And that's really, I think, the first foot on the path is being able to see it, having the courage to tell the truth. And then I think resisting the urge to move straight to reconciliation, because I think that's the easy thing is like, okay, we're going to see it. We're going to lament this awful past. We're going to apologize for it. Black people are going to forgive us and then we're going to move on. Right. But what that does is it skips the deeper question of justice and repair. And if we're thinking about like a Christian response, you know, to this and and something about a Christian response, understanding of repentance, it has to be much more than just an apology and a reach for things to be better. But I think, you know, one of the things I learned I actually from these two churches um in Macon that the, the white pastor said to me, I've stopped talking about reconciliation and we're just talking about justice. And, and I think the reason he said that is because if um I think white Christians do enough of the work of repair. Uh, do enough of the work of justice and really just making things right after all this wrong, I think to put it in kind of plain language, the question of reconciliation is going to work itself out. Like that's a product of the work of repair and justice.
1: Thank you, Robbie. Thanks for talking with us.
2: Oh yeah. No, thank you so much. Glad to be here.
0: The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.